Did you see what Tom DeLong posted? No, I don't follow Tom DeLong at all. He is equal parts just a ridiculous human being who believes in outlandish things and also every now and then has something really interesting to say. But this is what he said. This is a real picture of an alien. Do I need to follow Tom DeLong? Because I find that delightful as a description of a person. But that's... Uh, but where said- did he get this from? I have it just no says idea. real picture. It just says real picture. <laughs> <laughs> There's, it, I, it, it, it does look like a real picture, but it doesn't say yes, it's an alien Maybe at all. he just said it's a real picture. No, it's a real on, picture. Yeah. On things on Reddit, they're talking about how Tom said this is an official photo of an alien. The first one that they've ever officially said is an alien. It is. I, I have no idea what it is. It's too pixelated to Can tell you zoom anything. that up again? That looks like uh what what's the name of the alien? Is it from wearing aliens? a turtleneck? No, I, it looks like the alien from aliens. What do they call really? that guy again? A xenomorph? Yeah. Look at the like yeah, xenomorph. The like teeth in the middle. That's creepy. Wait, it, I barely see the outline of a human figure. <laughs> I guess we'll wait I, until I, Tom I, I in two years somehow has this alien on as a guest. But yeah, it looks that, yeah. it looks like I'm looking up at like the shoulders up. Okay, but it just says real picture. This is a real picture. Thanks, Tom DeLong. I mean, you can't discount Tom DeLong, I guess. Yeah, but this is just another one of those things. Those Tom yeah. DeLong things. <laughs> well, should we get on with the episode? Then? Can you zoom it in again? I, yeah. That's his. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, let's get on with the episode. Okay. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Welcome to our continued uh, analysis of, or sorry, welcome to our continued talks on UFOs and UFO sightings. Chelsea and I are now going to continue on with our overview of J. Allen Hynek's Close Encounters of the X-Kind Scale. So do you yes. want to take over, Chels? I do. This episode, we're covering Close Encounters of the Second Kind. So just to reiterate what we went through on the last one with Close Encounters of the Second Kind, it is a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat and discomfort in a witness, or some physical trace-like impressions on the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation or a chemical trace. So this is where we're seeing actual physical effects of a close encounter. And I, I don't start us out with. Uh, I don't think it really matters how many of those factors that you just listed are included in this. It's really just it captures all of those things one. in this level. Any one of them, I'm assuming. One or more. It doesn't specify, but I would assume. It would be at least one or more. And I think to get to the next level, you need to have one of those things in that category show up in the case. You would. You would yes. to get to seeing beings. And I, um, I actually am really excited because the one that I am going to look at here today, it has pretty much every one of those categories you just listed occur in it. So I am going to talk today about a sighting known as the Falcon Lake incident, and it is also known as Canada's Roswell. I know you're going to be talking about Britain's Roswell. 
I am. It's a good day for Roswell, <laughs> but we just we just completely said it's a terrible case. The I Roswell wonder if case. this should be included in Close Encounters of a Second Kind, After some Roswell sort of Roswell. <laughs> <laughs> the Roswell effect. So let, let's set the stage here. The year is 1967. It is May 20th. And a 51-year-old Polish immigrant by the name of Stefan Mahalik is on vacation, taking up his favorite pastime of prospecting. So his one thing that he loves to do is go out into the bush. You know those poles. Anna did it all the time. I remember that. They go out <laughs> into the bush, find a vein of a, a different kind of mineral. Uh, he was looking for silver and quartz here. Stake the claim and go register that claim with the government. He'd done this before. He actually had a few stakes in this area. Everything went fine before, but on this specific day, things went a little different. In the morning, he went out to Falcon Lake, which is 170 kilometers outside of Winnipeg. He, Manitoba. Yeah, it is Manitoba. Um, <laughs> he's out there. He's fat. He's looking around the wilderness for a seam of silver he does end up finding that day a seam of quartz or a vein of quartz he goes out in the morning prospects takes lunch he comes back and he actually starts he has his pick out and he's picking at the ground trying to get at this quartz that he'd found uh make sure it's a true vein he hears geese reacting in a really strange way flying away as if being startled and he looks up to the sky and he sees two really weird lights he described them both as cigar-shaped with a slight bulge in the middle. Now he watches it for a couple seconds and one of these lights starts to head towards the ground and it lands and it doesn't land too far away from him. And he, he sits there and he looks at it and he decides, I'm going to draw a picture of this. So over the next half an hour, he sketches out this drawing. Wow. It is a very traditional looking UFO shape. It's got it's a true flying saucer. He I did was just gonna say. also, yeah, he did point out that there was a door on the bottom portion of the disc, as well as there's this mesh vent on the left side that he points out. That is detailed. Are those mathematical equations there? I don't know. Might be Polish. <laughs> I, I do believe he's kind of putting out what size it is. It doesn't look very big. So he says about three. I can't tell if that's 35 to 40 feet or 3.5 to 4.0 Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. I thought it was math. Yeah, that does um, look like yeah. measurements. So after half an hour, this craft is still on the ground. And he decided to go over and, in his own words, see if those Yankees needed help. Because he was convinced right off the bat this was a U.S. operation or test flight. So he goes over to the craft. He's able to get there and it's still there, just sitting there. First thing he notes is that the area smells heavily of sulfur. Second thing he notices as he gets closer is that the exterior of this craft is completely seamless, which just seems completely out of the ordinary for a man-made object. Mm -hmm. And as he's inspecting it, he puts his hand up to it and he's wearing, he's wearing work gloves. He's a uh, industrial mechanic by trade, so he has all the proper equipment for this. And his glove gets spurned from touching it. As he's looking around at this craft, the door opens. It comes down and he can hear talking inside. But he doesn't, he at least doesn't say he recognizes 
what language it is or if he could hear what was being said. Mm. But he decides to say, do you guys need a hand in there? To which silence comes from the inside. Being an immigrant, he then asks the same thing in Polish. He then asks the same thing in Russian. And then he asks the same thing in German, to which he receives no response in any of them. And he tries to peer inside, but the light's too bright to see anything. But he had brought his welding goggles along because that's what he'd use while he's picking. He put his welding <laughs> goggles on and he saw uh, control panels and blinking lights inside, but he didn't see any occupants. Anyhow, at this point, the door goes up, the craft starts to kind of rotate, and that mesh panel that we we're just talking about that he noted <laughs> turns towards him and shoots a stream of air at him and it hits him right in the chest and his shirt catches on fire he's knocked to the ground uh he ends up vomiting this is his shirt whoa and he was wearing what would colloquially be called a wife beater and it's got a square right in the chest section with mesh little dots shot onto it oh yeah he uh, he ends up vomiting. He gets up. He ends up going back to his hotel room. Feels really sick. He gets on a bus, goes back to Winnipeg. He checks into the hospital. And for the next several weeks, it seems kind of crazy, but there is a photo. This is what he looks like in the hospital. He has severe burns, and it is a mesh outline exactly as what was burned onto his chest, on his shirt. Interesting. I just saw that on the shirt, and I don't know, would that have lined up with where it was on? It must line up with it, where it was yeah, on the I shirt. Yeah, I don't know. Just, it doesn't seem to line up from that, but I don't know what was happening It seemed to there. be the top of his shirt, and that's clearly on his stomach. Just slightly below, yeah. But if it's a looser yeah. shirt, it hits in that spot, yeah. He ends up sick for weeks. He would constantly black out. He had nausea, diarrhea, and constant fatigue. Goes on for weeks. A month later, he ends up having to go to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And he gets checked out because the burns are still there. And they do a mental analysis of him. And they say there's absolutely nothing wrong with you mentally. And you're a very grounded individual. He ended up reporting this to the police. The official story that they came up with is that he was drunk. <laughs> and he just made up the story. The other common way that this gets debunked is that he was trying to keep people away from his mineral rights like he just wanted to keep prospecting there so he wanted to keep people away from it mm -hmm. years later this would still like every now and then the outline on his chest of this burn mark would reappear in that same fashion anyhow he ended up reporting this to the police because when he was in poland he worked as a military officer and he hated that he did it but he said it was his duty to report things that happened due to his background like reporting this and a year later well and when he took the police to find where this craft had landed he couldn't find it the next year he went back with some friends and they found the area where he believed it had landed there was radiation in the area it is hard to say whether or not that radiation came from anything from this incident or if it's because this is a radium rich area. It, it's torn both ways on which of those is the right answer. But they found this piece of metal stuck in the ground there and it is still radioactive. Hey, I just want to ask when they found that because that is a toonie. <laughs> So this, the family and still has it. Yes. This took place in 1967. They found this in 1968. 
The Toonie is only there for scale. The family still has this. Stefan Mahalik died in 1999. His son still holds on to this. His son actually just released a book, I believe, last year on this whole incident. And his son also said that when his father came back from this endeavor and they're about to take him to the hospital for that entire time where he was sick, he reeked of sulfur. Interesting. And um, right I up until the day he died. Be... I have one more thing. There's just one more thing in okay. this case. Stefan didn't actually believe this was aliens. He believed it right to the point of his death. He believed that it was a military exercise on top secret crafts. Not unfounded. And in 2018, Canada released a $20 coin commemorating this event. I love this. It has basically all of those characteristics that you just explained. Make something a close encounter mm -hmm. of the second kind is present here. We have animals reacting to the lights in the sky. We have him mm -hmm. touching the craft. We have injuries. We have a landing area that is later investigated and found to still kind of have the shapes there. It's got a lot. He even smells something. And the stench of sulfur is something we'll likely talk about in a future episode. But it ties a lot of things together that a lot of people who talk about UFOs and just UFOs don't like to discuss. I like that. I'm writing it down right now to come back to you. My question is, why couldn't he find the spot to begin with? He had to get the rights for where he was mining for minerals well, and i think part of it was and sorry i missed this when i was talking about it when he got hit by that thing in the chest and he was trying to make his way back his compass wasn't working so wouldn't it have been close by to where he was though that would mean that he knew where he was right after lunch i would guess that this was fairly disorienting and also the fact that he did suffer physical injury and true. i don't know if he actually found anything worth prospecting that day either true which would make it more notable and then he he yeah. himself like had the smell of sulfur after that is interesting as well yeah and it wasn't him saying it either that was a, a that was a third party saying that he reeked of sulfur interesting that was a good one i liked it and canadian we have some good yeah. sightings in canada yeah yeah, the two most notable ones that people usually look at are uh, this one, Falcon Lake, and Shag Harbor. Mm. Those are both two very good cases. Shag Harbor. I don't know if I've heard that one. This one does yeah, kind of ring a bell, Yeah, we can do that one though. later on. Oh, and okay, the whole so... thing about him being drunk, I, I'm fairly certain that was just a Polish stereotype because no one really ever said that he had an alcohol problem or that he smelled of alcohol or even was drinking that day at all and it didn't necessarily have to be any type of stereotype it could have just been trying to discount what had happened as well i just as like to think just... because this is right around the time that all in the family was going on and i really like to think that the people that are putting this claim forward were archie bunker fans i do like that that is an old one actually yeah. 1967. Okay, and that concludes my little review of Falcon Lake. Okay, good one. So I got my little big review. My One of my favorite UFO cases, Roswell of the UK, Rendlesham Forest, just one of the best UFO cases. So this is in the United Kingdom near Suffolk? Suffolk? Suffolk. Um, Boxing Day, December 26, 1980. And this 
occurs after midnight. There are actually three consecutive nights of sightings on this one. There is the third night. I actually hadn't, maybe I had heard about it up until this point. I, it is not the top of memory on this one. I'm not going to go into too much detail on this because uh, the third night actually isn't recorded in any of the, the release documents either. This also has a little bit of everything for the uh, close encounter of the second time. So Rendlesham Forest is between RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, which is uh, U.S. bases in the United Kingdom. So we have Airman First Class John Burroughs and Staff Sergeant Bud Stevens are stationed at RAF Woodbridge at the back gate, which they are patrolling near the east gate. They're on skeleton crew. It's boxing day, so they're not expecting any flights or airplanes at this time. That is December 26th for anybody who doesn't know that. Yes, boxing day, 1980. (laughs) Um, So the two of them are on uh, out at the east gate on patrol, and they notice odd lights hovering low in the sky. And like I said, there's no plane scheduled to be taking off. There's none in the air at the time until they notice these odd lights hovering in the sky. And mm-hmm. just to add a little bit, being an Air Force base, they should be aware of all air traffic in the area. And something not being known by mm-hmm. the Air Force is really quite alarming. Yes. So this is essentially what they're on patrol for. <laughs> is things that are out of the ordinary that shouldn't be there, I'm assuming. So these lights are flashing red, yellow, and green. The two of them decide to investigate when And they found it's a traffic light, right? Yes. Red, yellow. And then the story is done. Yes. (laughs) We all learned a little something that day. See you next time. (laughs) (laughs) So they decide to investigate, and when they get close, another object appears. And it's moving towards them. And this one is bright white. So they go, I think we need to go back to the base for help. So they go back to the base where they reported to Sergeant McCabe, who thought that it might have been a downed aircraft. So security, Sergeant McCabe goes to security, who dispatches uh, Staff Sergeant James Penniston, who is the flight chief on duty at RAF Woodbridge that night. He, uh, Penniston is in charge of weapons at the base, which is why he's dispatched there as well. And Stevenson says stays behind because he's nervous about this encounter that they have. So then it's uh, Burroughs and Penniston, which take Airman First Class Ed Cabinsog and meet, or sorry, Penniston takes Airman First Class Ed Cabinsag and they meet Burroughs to investigate uh, what's going on. All three of them are tr- taking a logging road in the forest to get up to the lights that they've seen. They can only go so far on a logging road, so they stop the truck. Penniston and Burroughs continue on foot while Casbinog remains at the truck to continue radio communication with the base. When he's at the truck, he learns that London Heathrow had an unidentified flying object on the radar near the area that they were in at that time. So Penniston and Burroughs walk towards the lights and notice agitated animals fleeing the area away from where this object is. Did they say what kind of animals? 
they did not say what kind of animals specifically in anything I looked at. I've never, I have not come across any one mention of any single animal, just animals. Both are making extremely detailed observations of what's going on. No smells, no noise, uh, no smell of fuel as they were looking for a downed aircraft, no fire, no sign of anything that's down. And their radiators are beginning to break up. Um, Chelsea, just sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure that this is clear because I think this is something because I have read a lot on this one as well. These guys mm-hmm. are medically trained professionals as well. Like there's a reason they're out there first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like they're, they're expecting to find bodies and being ready to help as soon as possible. Not yeah. only that, but they're they're fairly high up in the military. So they're both trained extensively in what they're identifying, why they're out there. They're expecting to see a downed aircraft. So kind of from here on out, both men have reported entirely different encounters with the object that they come upon, which I find kind of strange. Jin Pettison is, there's a quote from him. He says, there's an area of about 15 feet which surrounded this. So they come up on an aircraft, (laughs) a craft. And Jim Pettison says, there is an area of about 15 feet which surrounded the outside of the craft, the area I will call the bubble. Where within the bubble, static electricity pulsed upon my clothes, skin, and hair. Also an appearance of slowing time. The air seemed dead, not transmitting any sound. Any extraordinary and sensational event, for sure, one that defied all I ever knew or all I could ever imagine. They both come up on this object. Uh, Peniston is making extremely detailed observations about it. So he says it's three meters tall, three meters wide at its base. And he's noting specific things like it, it's, it was not large enough to be able to fit any people inside. And he's obviously trained in aircraft identification, as we've seen in a lot of other sightings that we've talked about so far in previous episodes. So three meters tall, three meters wide at its base. Standing upright, it tapered into a cone with blue lights around the middle and no landing gear visible. And it had a smooth surface and, and it was hard like glass. So Peniston touches the aircraft. Peniston also takes about 30, more than 30 photos. And he noticed that there's petroglyphs on the sides that he doesn't recognize. So he does compare it to Egyptian, um, ancient Egypt petroglyphs writing. But he said it's not like that at all. It's something yeah. that he in, is entirely unrecognizable. And I think it is important to say, because it does come up quite a few times, this is at least the second time that we've talked about petroglyphs on a mm-hmm. craft. And I think really what they're just saying is that there's many pictures along the side. It doesn't mean that we're talking about Egyptian. It just means that there no. are pictures along the side that could be writing, but it's unidentifiable. Yes, so I, I that, believe I mean, there should actually be another category that we talk about, unidentified flying writing. Yeah. But unfortunately, we'll at this time, <laughs> yes, investigation <laughs> into this category has been lacking up until now. It does come up, and I think it's just for lack of a better term, because we don't really have one for what people are seeing on UFOs. So maybe we need to add it to a dictionary. 
So Burroughs encounters what he notes as a flaming ball of fire. From here, the light kind of illuminates and the object rises up. And then they say in a blink of an eye, it just disappears and is gone. It is worth noting that they did develop the photos that Penniston took and they never turned out. And it's just assumed that it's from high levels of radiation. So back of the truck, Cabin Sag uh, witnesses an unusual object through the trees and appear near where the two men had set out towards. And his witness is that there is an it was egg-shaped with lights in the middle, flashing blue, bright red, and he insists that it's not the lighthouse. And I'm not going to get what into all the, the theories. Insist is that it was the yes, lighthouse. they do. They do all say that it's a lighthouse, and they're all adamant most of the all of the eyewitnesses that are military witnessing this do all differentiate between this and the lighthouse so this is actually corroborated with the civilians near the air base at the exact same time that they're all having experience there so there's a family that was driving down the road nearby to rendlesham forest and there's a little girl in the back seat who sees a shooting star but student shooting star just kind of floats there and they watch the whole family kind of turns their attention to it and watches the craft moving erratically and then take off. There's another witness who sees three lights over the forest and then one descends into the forest. Yeah, so there's civilians who cooperated this as well with what they're saying. Not that you need civilians cooperating what the military sees because they're highly detailed. Um, so when they get back to the base, two... Not Cabinsog, but the two Penniston and um, Burroughs are missing about two and a half hours there and about. Yeah, they they only um, report in their time out there like five minutes of interaction with the craft when really that was over two hours. Um, and I could see that going by fairly quickly if you're having a good time. Well, and one <laughs> of them did specifically say it felt like time was going by at a different rate. Yeah. Which I thought... And they do say... Yeah. I do see as, as say as soon as it takes off, it feels like time went back to normal and the interaction in world, I guess, kind of went back to normal. Yeah, which is something I think we will do a deeper dive into later is time dilation around crafts and more importantly, other interactions outside of UFO phenomenon. Nope. Okay. Uh, go so ahead. They get back to the base. They're missing two and a half hours. And so they're told to keep quiet and go back to search for physical evidence to confirm the sighting. So they did go back and found three indentations about eight feet by eight feet all in a triangle. And they do find trees and branches damaged around the area that they were in. I'm going to move away from Penniston and Burroughs, but I just want to say there. Well, okay. Scratch that. I'm not going to move away from them. I I'm just going like to finish up. That they brought a Geiger counter with them when they went to investigate in the morning. And they did find significant levels of radiation around these. That was actually. The that was actually uh, their second in command that went back with the Geiger counter, which I'll get into in a second. Oh, OK. Sorry. I'll just. Scratch I know. That I didn't yeah. think that either. Um, but there's so much information out there. And I didn't even know there was a third sighting. Um, so I'm just going to finish up on Penniston and Burroughs just kind of for their experience because it kind of goes off from there. 
So both men are essentially told to keep quiet. And then it kind of gets to, it's an unfortunate situation for them because they both start to have health problems because they they were both exposed to radiation through these experiences and ended up having some significant health problems after this. And it really sucks for them because the government is saying essentially that it didn't happen. So they're unable to recoup any medical. And these guys, these guys are both, sorry, Charles, I'll, I'll help you out here. These guys are both American military, correct? Yes. So veteran affairs needs a hold of their record to figure out what they could be suffering from, to be able to treat them for their sickness. And these documents on the American side, and it gets really messy because there is both American and British interaction with Hmm. the objects and these sightings. So it does get messy on who you should FOIA and even who holds these records. And even there's a very high up individual uh, from the UK government by the name of Nick Pope, who's talked about this, saying that it is really messy and he still doesn't know the full story. He's written Hmm. books on this and he says he doesn't know the full story. But... When Veteran Affairs looked into his record, there are significant portions of it that they they won't hand over because it's classified material. So he is unable to get Veteran Affairs assistance for his medical needs that relate to this because his record isn't available. Yeah, where he should be because he was in the military when he underwent all this contact with radiation. Both of these men have are quite actively providing interview interviews regarding the interactions they had with this. They're quite outspoken about it. Both men have been regressed under hypnosis and put under regression, which I'm not going to really touch on their experiences with that um, because no, it's close encounters of the second time. And I think we do have to do a whole episode where we just explain hypnotic regression because it is used quite a bit. And yeah, the the science on it is torn on whether or not it's useful or not. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's really, I find really interesting on this, and I do want to just mention it, that Penniston actually, when he left that night that he had the experience where he touches the UFO, he can't get a series of zeros and ones out of his head so much that he couldn't sleep And it was just all consuming. So he writes them down. And this is 1980. So binary code was not really well known at the time. He ended up writing it down. And at a later time, it was came to be that it was binary code. Binary code said it was exploration of humanity and gave seven geographical locations in the world. So we have Sedona, Arizona. One was Caracol, Belize. One was the Great Pyramid in Egypt. We have the Nazca Lions in Peru. We have somewhere in northern China. Taylor, do you know how to say the name of this Taishan I can't see it. Taishan Ku, China. We have a portal at Temple of Apollo in Naxos, Greece. And High Brazil. High Brazil? Um, that... Yeah. No way. Oh, I love High Brazil. Yeah. Not This is not actual Brazil. High Brazil is a mythical island off the coast of Ireland that has nothing to do with the country of Brazil. It's it's a yeah. it's a beautiful that little story Brazil. that we'll definitely talk about <laughs> at some point. Spelt H-Y, yeah. Brazil. 
HY Brazil, UK, at all of these locations, you find high magnetic fields and petroglyphs all at these locations. So just a really cool thing that he's I, taken away from here. Yeah, I always find it really weird when these things come up because it it requires two things. First off, that whoever, whatever, sent that binary code to this individual spoke English and knew this person spoke English and they were able to send them this information through binary code Is binary translate code into English. English though? You can oh. translate it to English. But the whole thing is, is that when you translate it or when you calculate it out, they would have to know right. that you're going to calculate it out in English. I do like that you brought up that point because they were not given to him in the city names. It was um, the binary code was in the latitude and longitude of these places. Okay. And that's the second yes. part. Uh, latitude and longitude are both human construction. And mm. by that, I mean, like, even if we're just talking about like latitude, technically, you could think about it like circles are universal, or sorry, spheres are universal. So most people would know that you would measure from the equator that you'd have 360 yeah. degrees. So you could do that. Mm -hmm. But longitude, we picked an arbitrary point of Greenwich. To I was be just gonna say, yeah. So that is very much so a human construct. So whoever is whatever is conveying this information to him would have to understand that system and how it works. It's not universally universal. Yeah. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like when you're watching Star Trek or something along those lines and they say we'll meet again in 3 days. And you're like, you're in space and you've never been to Earth. What the what the hell is a day to you? Yeah, exactly. Unless they just know that a day yeah, in but, their language. And, and that's something we it's might talk rotation. about in another date. But it, this does add a bit of confusion as to this binary thing. But a lot of interactions with UFOs and their occupants do like, lead to a lot of misinformation. Or at least a lot of strange information that you wouldn't expect to come out of it. You bring up a very good point with that. So those were just kind of a quick aside about Peniston and Burroughs and the experiences that they had. This does continue on to the next night. So I'm going to continue on to the rest of the experience. This is a very, this could be a very, very long episode on its own Rendlesham Forest. It's so good. And they continue on. They have very well-documented accounts of that alone. December 27th, this is the next day, 1980. Someone had actually alerted the second in command for the base. He's obviously a skeptic. So this is Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt. Um, he was alerted to what had happened the night before. And he was like, oh, that's weird. Um, really didn't think anything more of it other than that's weird because he's a skeptic. December 27th, 1980, there's four men stationed in the same place that I believe it was uh, Burroughs was the night before at the East Gate. Um, so they see lights moving over the trees and drop into the forest. The men drive towards from the base to the forest and they hear a deep humming sound and they see fog laying over the field with lights embedded in it and they can feel electricity in the air. Another patrol somewhere else on the base heard this and went to find the lieutenant colonel charles halt 
He said, the lights are back. So Charles Halt says, we're going to send a detailed search. So that's where he, Halt, sends a team with Geiger counters, cameras, tape recorders, sampling materials, and portable lights. And they actually, when they go, they actually find the original landing site where Penniston and Burroughs were. That's where they get the Geiger counters. And this is coming from the second in command for the base where he's brings in the Geiger counters with his team. And so the Geiger counters do measure higher than normal background levels for radiation levels there, which is one millichance, 0.1 millichance that they measure there at the site. And there they're investigating. Suddenly they see what this other team had saw and a bizarre object shows up about 150 meters away. The first kind. So it looks like a large glowing red eye, a black pupil and center and center flashing lights. And it's moving through the trees. Alt starts recording a voice recording of everything that he's witnessing now. So he has a quote. You can listen to this recording. This has actually been released under FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act through the United States. It's very a very choppy recording. So his quote, just from right here, he says, it's coming this way. It looks like an eye winking at us. He's coming towards us now. We're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground, one object still hovering over Woodridge Base. Um, so they're watching this. He's describing what he sees when everything disappears. Halt says, not light. It's not the lighthouse. He can see it in the distance, and it's not in. He can see it in the distance while all of this is happening with the aircraft. And, and guess he what says the skeptics the are going to say? It's the lighthouse. What? Yeah, it's the lighthouse. Even though I'm saying it's not the lighthouse <laughs> right now, it's the lighthouse. The lights reappear, and they're emitting sparks. And smaller lights are falling to the ground. So at this point, they're saying it looks like these aircraft are doing a grid grid search over Rendlesham Forest. And the lights stayed for several hours, shining lights into the forest doing this search. And they stayed there watching it. So that's the second night of sightings. As I said, there is a third night of sightings. However, I'm going to leave this one out of those encounters of the second kind. Because the following night does include a sighting of figures exiting aircraft. And actually, I was quite surprised at that one because that one is a very much lesser known part of the sighting. Yeah, that definitely is. Yeah. And this was that one was actually from someone who was new within a couple months into the military, however, cooperated with somebody else. And I'll get in, into that just in a second here. So Hart goes back and he re- submits all these reports to the British government Ministry of Defense and his superiors in the U.S. Air Force. He submits the voice recording that he had and all his findings with the Geiger counters and everything as far as the physical evidence at the initial sighting with Penniston and Burroughs. It was determined by the Air Force that there was no threat or anything to do with the Air Force. And that was kind of it. Hart... So his memo was released to the public in 1983 under the under FOIA in the USA, the Freedom of Information Act, which is how you can listen to the recording today. And yeah, that's Rendlesham kind of in a nutshell. And like I said, I just said I would touch on it and then I just didn't. You honestly um, did just touch on it. You could do a six hour podcast on this thing. Looking yes. at all the evidence, you would never get to all of it. 
Yeah. So Halt, and I just called him Hart. Uh, it's Halt, sorry. Halt did not submit any reports from the third night to the uh, Ministry of Defense or the U.S. Air Force, which is why it was never released with the Freedom of Information Act requests in 1983. Why? I don't know. And he didn't want it to hurt his career. Probably. I mean, honestly, probably with because there were mm -hmm. with Pennant and the uh, sorry, I forget the other guy's name. Anderson and John Burroughs. Yeah. And Burroughs, they they both had significant problems after this moving up in the military. And part of the reason they were so forthcoming with everything that happened afterwards is because they knew it wasn't going to affect their career in any ways because it was already done based on what they had happened to them. Yeah, so one of the best UFO cases out there, in my opinion, I really love Rendlesham Forest. If you're looking, yeah, if you're looking to learn more about Rendlesham Forest, Nick Pope, who we just spoke about a little earlier, has written a very nice book on it. It's uh, very detailed. Uh, Burroughs did help in it as well. So he's able to add his firsthand information. They're very active in giving interviews and they're in a number of different TV shows. They've done lots of different interviews. And it's also not hard to find further information if you do just want to learn a little bit more uh, through YouTube or through other podcasts. People have done deep. Oh, there's tons. There's a lot. It's quite an enjoyable one. I really like it because it's a military. It's there's so much evidence provided and that's military kit. yeah and if you want to learn more about the falcon lake incident the stefan mahalik's son did release a book last year so there that's out there as well the cbc oh, actually cool. did a good little story on it that explains the entire incident as well as the canadian encyclopedia it has a uh, a good story on it as well and the cbc story does include pictures that first of the craft that Stefan had sketched while he was sitting there pictures of his t-shirt that was completely destroyed and pictures of his burn marks on his chest. Stefan was an artist. That was a really enjoyable sketch. Yeah. And, and that's a little w- weird because he's a mechanic by trade and his hobbies prospecting. So I did not expect that. <laughs> no, very artistic. He has gentle hands behind those gloves. <laughs> take half an hour to sit and sketch that i mean yeah so those are just a a sample of what you can find in close encounters of the second kind i do find these ones the most interesting to read i think they they are the most grounded and usually they just have evidence that seem is so enticing whereas once we get to the next level it, it goes from enticing to the bizarre yeah and that's where i like it yeah um i like the bizarre and I can't say I'd even want to have a close encounter of the second kind or first cl- kind. Honestly, first kind is where I, I would kind of want to end it. Like coming yeah. within 500 feet of a unidentified craft. Yeah. So long as it ends there. Yeah, I'm pumped. I throw my string with my ball on it. I'm like 500 feet. I'm out of here. If it is yeah. within that I got- range. <laughs> <laughs> if not, you're moving three steps forward and throwing again. Yeah, and then I run away as soon as I'm too close. <laughs> Anyhow, that is Close Encounters of the Second Kind. Stay tuned for our next episode, Close Encounters of the Third Time Kind, where we'll be talking about an Italian man giving a Wisconsin farmer a pancake. And I will explain why that is totally something that we should be talking about with UFOs. So thank pancakes. you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye! 
Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, we are a new podcast, and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share, and if possible, provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better. But five-star review is the best thing you can do for us, as it does help, unfortunately, in the world of algorithms. Yes. Please and thank you. And you can follow us on social media at Journey to the Fringe. We don't have all of them, so try searching it. Instagram, we're on Facebook. Right now we have a subreddit. And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know, so we're only and in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are mm -hmm. only as good as our research, and if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we yes. will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.